This is episode 54 of the March of History. We left our last episode with Caesar and his two legions approaching the siege of Quintus Cicero's camp. And upon seeing Caesar approaching, the coalition of Gallic or Belgic tribes left Quintus Cicero's camp alone and instead marched to face the now heavily outnumbered Caesar. And that is where we pick back up today on episode 54. Now, the second the Gauls start marching towards Caesar, Quintus Cicero knows that he has to find a way to warn Caesar. Any advance notice of this army coming towards him will help Caesar even the odds. So Quintus approaches the, actually the same Nervian nobleman who had provided the last slave to him who had delivered the original message to Caesar to ask Caesar for help. And this Nervian nobleman, amazingly, is able to provide yet another Gaul to carry yet a new message through the enemy lines and risk torture and death in front of the Roman lines. And just like before, this man does manage to make it through the enemy lines by being a Gaul, by looking like a Gaul, by speaking their language, and by having their customs and their dress, and so makes it through the Gallic lines and all the way to Caesar at about midnight. Caesar, upon receiving this message at midnight, immediately gathers all of his men together in the middle of the night. He then breaks the news to them that the Gauls are on their way and that they heavily outnumber his Roman force. But it's not all doom and gloom. Caesar also makes sure to encourage his men to fight bravely and so gives them some optimism. Now, we don't know the exact words of this nighttime meeting that Caesar would have said to his soldiers, but we know from Suetonius that Caesar's typical practice was as follows, and I quote, If rumors about the enemy's strength were causing alarm, his, meaning Caesar's, practice was to heighten morale not by denying or belittling the danger, but on the contrary, by further exaggerating it. End quote. And what Suetonius is saying here is that Caesar, rather than saying, hey guys, maybe it's not actually 60,000, you know, the Gauls aren't as strong as they say, I'm sure we can do this, and belittling the odds against them. Instead, Caesar just, you know, kind of exaggerates it all and says, oh, you heard it was 60,000? Guess again, it's 80,000. It's 120,000. Oh, you heard all the Gauls were six feet tall and bulging with muscles? Actually, they're seven feet tall and are even more muscular than you thought. And by showing this sort of bravado and this sort of exaggeration and willingness to joke even while facing danger, Caesar is sending a message to his troops that he's not concerned. Whether it's 60,000 or 80 or 120,000, whether the Gauls are six feet tall or seven feet tall, it doesn't matter because Caesar and his Roman army can handle any odds thrown their way. And his troops pick up on this sort of bravado. But despite these displays of bravado, Caesar does know that he has to remain cautious. So the next day, rather than marching off before dawn begins, as was his practice in previous days, Caesar instead waits until dawn arrives to give his soldiers better visibility. The last thing Caesar wants is for his army to collide with the Gallic force in nighttime conditions when neither side can see what's going on. So Caesar and his two legions pick up camp at dawn and then march four miles before they spot the Belgic coalition across a valley with a stream running through it. So Caesar decides to stop his army where they're at and make camp there. 
And so at this point, we have the Gallic force and the Roman force facing off against each other, but between them is a valley with a river running through it. And Caesar's content to sit there and wait and not rush forward anymore because now he sees the Gallic force has come to face him and he knows that Quintus Cicero's camp is no longer in danger. Therefore, there's not the same sense of urgency that there had been. However, Caesar is now left in a difficult situation. If he advances forward to fight the Gauls, his troops will have to cross down into the valley, cross a stream, climb up the far side of the valley, and the Gauls would then face them then, giving the Gauls the high ground in any battle and a huge advantage of terrain. And this is a doubly bad idea for Caesar since the Gauls already far outnumber his force. He doesn't need to give them the advantage of terrain as well. But if Caesar remains where he is, the Gauls, they're not stupid enough to cross over to his side of the valley and give the Romans the advantage of the high ground, even if they do outnumber him. So it seems that the current terrain is just going to cause a stalemate. Now, the issue is that Caesar can't afford a stalemate either because his legions only took with them light kit in order to rush out to save Quintus Cicero's camp as quickly as possible. They didn't bring a heavy baggage train with them. So Caesar needs to find a way to convince the Gauls to fight him on ground of his choosing and to do so quickly. Now, this dilemma that Caesar faces is very similar to the one that Napoleon Bonaparte, centuries later, would face at his crowning battle of Austerlitz. Napoleon at the Battle of Austerlitz held a strategic position known as the Pratzen Heights, and much like their name suggests, the Pratzen Heights were a high position up on a hill, very good for defense. But Napoleon knew that the enemy that he was facing, the Austrians and the Russians, would never attack him on disadvantageous ground, even if they did outnumber him. So it's much like Caesar's situation. And so Napoleon, again, much like Caesar, had to find a way to lure his enemy into attacking and fighting on ground of his choosing. And Napoleon's solution to this dilemma seems to have taken a lot of inspiration from what Caesar does here. In fact, Napoleon was a big student of Caesar's Gallic commentaries, so really, it's not surprising. But we will leave Napoleon there for a moment, because if I tell you what Napoleon does, it'll give away what Caesar does. But don't worry, we're going to come back to Napoleon soon. So when building his camp on his side of the valley, Caesar chooses a strong position, but makes sure to build the camp, the Roman camp, as small as possible, while still being practical to the use of the legionaries. And since Caesar only had a little bit more than 7,000 men to begin with and no baggage train, the Roman camp would have been a small Roman camp to begin with. But by making the roadways of their camp narrower than usual, Caesar manages to make the camp even smaller. And you may wonder, how does this help Caesar win a battle, making his camp super small? Well, Caesar's intention with all of this is to make the Gauls despise the puny size of the Roman camp and therefore to feel overconfident in fighting the Romans. And Caesar's goal in doing that is to lure the Gauls across the valley and make them fight him where he wants them to fight him. And similarly, at the Battle of Austerlitz, Napoleon Bonaparte also made his force appear in a state of disordered retreat to lure his enemy into attacking him on ground of his choosing. And it's hard to believe Napoleon didn't derive some inspiration on this move from Caesar and what Caesar does in today's episode. 
Now, despite all of Caesar's attempts to lure the Gauls across the valley, that first day, the Gauls don't take the bait and their infantry stays put. Caesar says they were waiting for reinforcements to arrive before facing the Romans. However, the cavalry of both sides do engage in a small battle in the valley between the two camps, actually by the stream in the valley. And it isn't a conclusive battle, so it really doesn't have an effect on either side, but it happens. So, at this point, Caesar has made his camp look small and insignificant, but this hasn't managed to lure the Gauls into his trap yet. So the next day, Caesar decides he needs to add a little bit more showmanship to his displays of weakness. So Caesar starts by having his legionaries build a higher rampart surrounding the camp and barricading all of the entrances to the camp. But in doing this work, he tells the legionaries to do all of it in a state of pretend panic. In other words, he wants his men to build extra fortifications for the camp while pretending to be panicking. And all of this is done so the Gauls will see this and despise the Romans even more. Look at them, they're afraid of us, they're building up their fortifications more and more each day, and look at the way they're going about doing it, they look like they're panicking, these guys are cowards. And if the Gauls despise the Romans, they may just be willing to fight the Romans on unfavorable ground. Now it should also be said that having your troops pretend to panic requires them to be very disciplined and experienced and brave. I mean, it would be hard to imagine Caesar ordering his troops to do this if they were really actually afraid and near a state of panic to begin with. Because in a case like that, if your troops are actually near to panic and you order a pretend panic, the pretend panic could easily become the real thing very quickly. Now, in addition to all of these displays of fake panic at the Roman camp, Caesar tells his allied auxiliary cavalry to engage with the Nervian cavalry, just like they had the day before in the valley, but this time he tells them to pretend to panic and run away from the Nervian cavalry. And so that next day arrives, and as the panic around the camp is happening and they're constructing the camp with ever higher fortifications, the Nervii cavalry then comes out at dawn and approaches the Roman camp, and the Roman auxiliary cavalry goes out to meet them and does exactly as Caesar ordered them to do and flees before the Nervian cavalry in a state of pretend panic. Now, the Nervii are a tribe that is not known for having very good cavalry to begin with, so you can imagine how confident they are now feeling having shown their value in front of the entire Gallic army, that they were able to chase off the Roman auxiliary cavalry, and you can imagine the rest of the Gallic infantry, who must know that the Nervian cavalry are garbage, see this and say, wow, if the Nervian cavalry can chase off their cavalry like that, then these guys must be no match for us. And this is a tipping point. It's been a combination of the small camp that Caesar made, the extra fortifications they threw up, the panicky behavior of the legionaries, and now finally the rout of Caesar's cavalry. All of this combines and finally the Gauls take the bait and they march their entire army across the valley, over the river, up the other side of the valley to the tiny Roman camp. But even now, Caesar isn't quite ready to spring his trap. You see, he wants the Gauls to really let their guard down. 
So Caesar orders all of his men to abandon the walls of their camp, as if they're so afraid of the Gauls that they are neglecting to even stand on the walls and fight. As you would imagine, this emboldens the Gauls, and they come closer and closer to the Roman camp. And the Gauls begin to throw missiles over the Roman walls, and yet still, the Romans don't react. Now, the Gauls are no doubt a little confused by all of this, but still they're feeling extra confident now. And so they send heralds out to the Roman camp to announce to the Romans that anyone who wants to surrender will not be harmed, but if they do not surrender, they will be shown no mercy. And yet, still, the Romans don't react. And at this point, the Gauls begin to think that the Romans are just the most despicable types of cowards, hiding and shivering in their tents from the Gallic army. And so the Gauls confidently walk right up to the Roman camp walls. Now, Caesar says that his men had placed a single layer of turf over each camp gate. And this single layer of turf made the gates appear to be barricaded, but in reality, it's pretty easy for the Romans to push this aside when they need to. Well, the Gauls now become so confident and despise the Romans so much that they walk right up to the Roman camp and they begin filling in the camp ditches and even begin tearing down the turf that's blocking each gate of the Roman camp. And only then does Caesar finally give the signal to attack. You see, a column of Romans has been waiting silently behind each gate, and now at Caesar's signal, each Roman column pushes down the turf barrier between them and the Gauls and charges out of every gate. And at the same time, Caesar unleashes his cavalry, and the Gauls are so shocked and surprised by this that they immediately go into a panicked retreat. Caesar says not a single one of them stopped to even resist the Roman army. They were in such a state of panic. And in Caesar's words, quote, He, meaning Caesar, killed a large number of them and stripped them of all their arms. End quote. And just like that, Caesar has defeated an army that was far larger than his own, and he has done so, as he so often does, not with superior tactics on the battlefield or maneuvering, but by having a greater understanding of human psychology than his enemy did. And don't get me wrong, Caesar did have to choose the right terrain to dig into, and he did have to be restrained enough to know not to attack across the valley. But in the end, it was Caesar's understanding of how the Gallic warriors would think and what actions on the part of the Romans would lead them to despise the Romans that allowed Caesar to lure them into his trap. And I always find this fascinating, that a strong understanding of human psychology could be used to such great effect by a general in war. But getting back to the battle, after winning his victory, Caesar then stops his men from pursuing the Gauls into the woods and marshes around them, and in doing so, he prevents them from being led into ambushes that could turn their victory into a defeat. And once all the Roman troops had returned to the Roman camp, they then marched together to link up with the beleaguered Quintus Cicero and his legion, who are now, finally, free from danger.
and Quintus and his legion must have been beyond relieved to see their fellow Romans approaching after having defeated the Gallic army with Caesar at their head. As has happened so often in the Gallic Wars up to this point, when the Romans found themselves in dire straits, they were able to rely on Caesar to move hell and high water to save them. And this lesson has just been reinforced on Quintus's legion in dramatic fashion. And when we think about it, Caesar has raced at lightning speed into the den of the lion, heavily outnumbered to rescue this legion. And in doing so, he has put his own life and the lives of the two legions with him at risk. And this is something that Quintus's legion would not soon forget. And the rest of the army would have taken note of this too. If they were in trouble, they would know now that they could rely on Caesar to risk life and limb to rescue them. How many other commanders had they had in the past who would never have risked their own life to save a legion? How many commanders had they had in the past that would have said, well, I only have two legions, I can't possibly face down 60,000 or however many troops it is, so better if I stay put and just let them get wiped out. These legions, before they had Caesar, probably had many commanders that thought that way and would have put their own personal safety ahead of the safety of their troops. Caesar's not one of them, and the legionaries appreciate this to no end. Now, of course, it should be said that the fate of the 14th legion was an exception to this rule, where Caesar was not able to save his troops, but... Caesar didn't learn of their fate until after the fact, so I think his troops probably would have excused him for that to some degree. Now, upon arriving in Quintus's camp, Caesar is amazed at all the defensive fortifications Quintus's legion has managed to construct during their siege to protect their camp. And so Caesar calls a parade of Quintus's legion to see them all before him. And at this parade, he is astounded to learn that over 90% of the legion has incurred wounds in the fighting. All of this leads Caesar to understand just how great of danger they had been in and just how hard they had fought to survive until Caesar came to relieve them. And so in response to seeing all of this, Caesar heaps praises on Quintus Cicero and on his legion, He then addresses the military tribunes and the centurions one by one to show his appreciation of them. And this is another sign of respect that would not be forgotten by the ordinary legionaries and their officers. The next day, Caesar holds yet another parade. And at this parade, he tells his legions of the disastrous fate of the 14th Legion, which in our last episode had been led out of their camp and had been ambushed and wiped out by the Belgic coalition that Caesar had now faced down and defeated. And of course, in telling the story of the 14th Legion, Caesar makes sure to throw the now-dead Sabinus under the bus and then throws the bus into reverse and backs it over him again. But he doesn't just use this opportunity for scapegoating. Caesar also makes sure to encourage his troops by telling them that they have now avenged their fallen brethren by defeating the Belgic coalition. And the news of Caesar's victory here soon finds its way all the way to the territory of the Treveri, who are camped only a few miles from Caesar's right-hand man's camp, Titus Labienus. 
And upon learning of this, the leader of the Treveri, Indutio Maris, you remember he is the first man that went around Gaul stirring up trouble and caused this whole rebellion. Indutio Maris and his army, upon learning this news, now melt away under the cover of darkness and just disappear from next to Titus Labianus' camp. So, with the immediate crisis averted, and it seems like the rebellion's been put down, Caesar sends his legate Fabius back to winter quarters with one of his legions, and then marches his own legion and Quintus Cicero's legion back to Samarobriva. And there they meet up with the young Crassus' legion again. And now, for the first time, Caesar will spend the entirety of his winter in free Gaul, or as the Romans called it, long-haired Gaul, to keep an eye on the tribes and make sure that no rebellion spreads. That is where we will end our episode today. On our next episode, Caesar may think that he stamped out the embers of rebellion, but as happens so often, no one told the Gauls that. And once news spreads around Gaul of the defeat of the 14th Legion, tribes will get fired up and almost all of the Gallic tribes will begin secretly planning for war against Rome. Before you go, don't forget to donate a dollar per show with our PayPal link, a dollar a show. It helps the show to grow. And as always, thank you to our Patreon supporters. Your contributions make this show possible, and I appreciate your contributions to the show more than you know. So thank you so much, and thank you to everybody for listening, and I will talk to you on episode 55 of the March of History. 